You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. A database scraped from Facebook in the bad old days before last year's reforms holds information on about 419 million users. We'll talk ransomware threats to election security. We've got notes from the Billington Cybersecurity Summit. Is your phone reporting back to Mountain View or Cupertino? Probably not. And the feds get a guilty plea in the case of the Satori botnet. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, September 5th, 2019. Facebook has sustained a significant data exposure incident. TechCrunch reports that a researcher found an unsecured database that contains data on some 419 million users. The data contained, for the most part, user phone numbers linked with account IDs, but in many cases it also included users' real names, gender, and country. This isn't, properly speaking, a Facebook breach. The data came from Facebook, but it wasn't a Facebook database. The data was scraped. The exposed database was not maintained or controlled by Facebook. Facebook said that the information appeared to have been scraped at some time before Facebook restricted third-party access to its data last year. Who scraped the data is so far unknown. The head of NSA's Cybersecurity Directorate said yesterday at the Billington Cybersecurity Summit that ransomware represents an interesting threat to upcoming U.S. elections. The Hill quotes Anne Neuberger as saying ransomware will be a focus of her directorate during the election cycle. The ongoing wave of ransomware attacks against U.S. local governments thus acquires another level of menace. The ransomware security specialists at MSISoft have been wondering why so many of these attacks have hit southern states like Louisiana, Texas, and Florida, and they think that extortionists are choosing targets they regard as likely to pay. If that's so, this would appear to be another indication of the way the black market is responding to market forces. Here's something that mayors, city councils, and county judges might also factor into their risk calculations. An IBM study concludes that taxpayers, many of whom actually also vote, pretty clearly oppose paying ransom. So, Your Honor, if you secure your networks and properly back up your files, you will have saved the money of thousands of registered voters. Think about it. And speaking of the Billington Cybersecurity Summit, we have our people in Washington sitting in. The theme of this year is Top Government Priorities, A Call to Action, and the presenters represent a strong mix of industry and government leaders. Some highlights from yesterday's presentations include a view from the U.S. Federal CISO's Perch, notes on data and artificial intelligence, and some thoughts from NSA's Cybersecurity Directorate. Grant Schneider, currently the U.S. Federal Chief Information Security Officer, working from the Office of Management and Budget, explained that while his organization does have oversight responsibilities, 
He sees it essentially as a support structure designed to enable sound cyber practices throughout the federal government. Schneider's predecessor and co-presenter, Brigadier General Retired Greg Tuhill, now president of Six Terra Federal, said that his own views shifted over the course of his service. At one time, he would have attributed most incidents to careless, negligent, and indifferent people. But he eventually came to add overworked, and this may indeed be the most important risk factor. Learning how to manage risk under these conditions is a challenge, and the government personnel need to fully understand the new reality. Tuhill added, quote, If you use a computer or a mobile phone, you are a cyber operator and a target. End quote. When asked what keeps them up at night, Tuhill pointed to the exposure of critical infrastructure to attacks against industrial control systems. As the Internet of Things expands, risk exposure grows, and the cost of entry to threat actors declines. Schneider gave a one-word answer. China. When we talk about artificial intelligence and cybersecurity, we need to bear in mind that this is really two topics. One is the use of artificial intelligence in cybersecurity. The other is the cybersecurity of AI systems themselves. Both topics are complex, but panelists focused on the importance of data to both. Questions of data integrity grow sharper with the deployment of AI. Data poisoning attacks are a very real threat, and ensuring that data are trustworthy is a challenge, panelists thought. And there's a temporal dimension to this. The U.S. government began collecting data from the earliest days of the republic. The Constitution, for example, mandates a census every 10 years. This means, obviously, that the government didn't, because it couldn't, build concerns about AI's use of data into its collection and storage practices. Private industry, being far younger, finds it easier to build this in. But that doesn't mean tech companies enjoy all the advantages of youth. Weighing in from the private sector, Swami Siva Subramanian, who's vice president of Amazon Web Services, compared machine learning's current state of development to the Internet. He said, quote, If the Internet is still in day one after 30 years, machine learning just awoke and hasn't yet had a cup of coffee. End quote. We'll have more notes from the Billington Cybersecurity Summit tomorrow. Carol Terrio has been reviewing some of the most serious breaches involving third-party risk that we've seen so far this year. From the UK, here's her report. I was lucky enough to get the chance to speak with Dove Goldman. He is the Director of Risk and Compliance at Panarays, a firm focused on automating third-party security management. I invited Dove to come and talk with us about the most noteworthy breaches that have happened this year so far and get his thoughts on whether these are the most dangerous cyber times we've ever faced. Dove, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Now, before we get into the weeds, what has been your overall impression of 2019 so far in terms of these big breaches? Well, it doesn't take um, brilliance to recognize that we're seeing an increasing cadence of news about breaches. Mm. But certainly... Everybody has to assume these days that their information is going to be breached or has been breached, and it's floating around somewhere where a hacker can take advantage of it. God, it's a very depressing thought, isn't it? It is, and it pretty much means that unless you're willing to live in a cave with yeah. no electricity and <laughs> certainly no smartphone, you, you can't avoid this. <laughs> okay, so um, of 2019, security breaches we've seen so far, to your mind, what, which one has been the most interesting? 
Uh, so I'll, I'll start with one that I studied, a, a, I don't remember, a couple of months ago. Well, in its own way, it's quite scary. Uh, the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency, yeah. um, they had a, a breach where it, was, it wasn't them. It was a contractor called Perceptix. And they make the systems that at uh, a lot of the border locations, you'll see that they're scanning your license plate. That particular organization happened to have made a few mistakes, and they claim fewer than 100,000 people were affected. Right. But this is a scary one, just going back to my point of hiding in a cave. If you're going to cross a border with a car anywhere in the United States, your license plate is going to be uh, photographed. It's going to be matched against the database so that they can they can know who's crossing. And in, in a lot of cases, some of the same exact technologies used for toll collection today, which we all love, makes life easier. Mm. Um, and they're taking a picture of your face. Mm. So somebody somewhere knows that you crossed the border at a particular time. So they know your location. They have your license plate number and they have a picture of you and also of the other occupants in your car. So that's, that's pretty scary. The fact that this was a U.S. government agency and the fact that they had contracted this service out and there was this contractor that was breached and the U.S. agency obviously wasn't, wasn't smart enough to know that, that or well, I shouldn't, I don't, I shouldn't cast aspersions because I don't know exactly uh, how they let this happen, but it's <laughs> obvious that they were not careful enough. You're making a really good point there. So no matter how, how much you've locked down your own fort, all the people that have keys to your kingdom um, may leave a door open or may do something that just compromises your incredible security. That's, that's a, a scary thought that, um, in theory, very professional organizations that outsource important functions to other theoretically very professional organizations, they're in trouble. The other point I'll make is that there are good standards out there, standards like NIST and ISO, but we're focused on NIST uh, in the U.S. context, and they clearly define some of the best, pra in fact, the best practices that could have possibly uh, headed these, uh, these breaches off at the pass. And so how do you avoid them is out there. It's known. And if you're paying attention and you're being diligent, Maybe you avoid this. The person that's responsible for security within any firm, be it a small, you know, mom and pop shop to a massive corporation, how is their job cut out for them? It's complicated times right now. It is very, very difficult. They have to be everywhere all the time. They have to be looking at technology. They have to be looking at their software. They have to be looking at their people. But add to that this important concept that you have to have these standards that you're enforcing. You have to know how you can get your third parties to enforce them as well, your, sub, your contractors. Everybody who's in your greater business ecosystem has to be considered part of what many in the industry call an attack surface. Dove, I could talk to you all day about this. It's fascinating. Thank you so much for making the time and coming on the show and talking to us about this. Thank you again. My pleasure. This was Carol Terrio for The Cyberwire. There are fears currently finding expression in social media that big corporations routinely eavesdrop on phone calls and ambient conversations to better serve up targeted ads. The BBC says these fears are on balance unfounded. The security firm Wandera studied the concerns and concluded that they were mostly hooey, 
Could a phone be attacked and its microphone seized by the attacker? Sure. Is spyware a threat? Yes, indeed. Have companies used human monitors to perform quality assurance on user interactions with voice AI? They have indeed. But Wandera concludes that people should relax a bit. It's not as if a silent OK Google reports back to Mountain View that you've been talking to a friend about hockey sticks or the best way to grow tomatoes so the world's biggest marketing company can serve you ads for ice hockey or vegetable seeds. And finally, the feds got a guilty plea from one Kenneth Shushman, who copped to involvement in the Satori botnet. The register calls Mr. Shushman, who's just a tender 21 years of age, a script kitty. Their unkind lead is, quote, one more on down, two to go, end quote. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Professor Awais Rashid. He's a professor of cybersecurity at University of Bristol. Uh, Awais, it's great to have you back. We wanted to talk today about this notion of bystander privacy. What can you share with us today? So wearables are becoming more and more common. Um, we use them on our own person, but also increasingly, we also use them on uh, our companions, such as pets. The pet wearables are now effectively a billion dollar industry. And all these variables are all the time collecting data. 
And the question is, are they just collecting data of the person, or even in the case of pets, the animal that is wearing them, or are they also capturing information from around themselves, for example, through microphones or other sensors? And that's what I mean by the notion of a bystander privacy, that you may not be the actual wearer of a wearable device, but it may still be capturing information that is pertinent to you and in some ways impacting the privacy of those bystanders. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember a case where uh, there was someone uh, who was a pizza delivery person and they got uh, held up by someone. They got robbed of their cash. And not long after that, on Facebook, the person who robbed them came up as a possible friend uh, because of they had been in proximity of each other. Absolutely. And we, we see a similar trend. So we've re- recently done a study of pet wearable devices in this case. And in a lot of the cases, the devices are bought by users thinking that they are for their pets. And often the privacy policies also note that the devices capture the data about the pet. But for example, when you take your dog for a walk, the dog doesn't go for a walk by itself, right? So you go with the dog. Uh, so right. there is immediately, Mine certainly doesn't. Yeah. No, and, and, and there is immediately the owner's data is implicitly being tracked, and you can you can see potentially lots of uh, potential cases where this has implications. For example, ranging from air burglars knowing when to approach a home, so you know, to uh, even insurance companies inferring the health profiles of pet owners in that sense. So um, I guess the key question here is that as the as we move more and more towards a world of wearables where a lot of our activities are being tracked, we also come into contact with other people. And that might implicitly, or other wearables, which might implicitly actually track our our activities or locations without us being fully cognizant of that. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, I, I think about uh, something like like dog walking, but also uh, I think of a you know perhaps a married couple sharing the same car where more than one person may be accompanying that pet or that device. And so how do you uh, separate the data coming, the associated data coming from that thing that both of them are spending time with? Absolutely. And there is also the other case whereby through the activity and locations, for example, let's stay with the dog walking example, through the activities and locations that a dog goes to, you may be able to infer who is with the dog at a particular point in time. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if you could even uh, suss out, you know, different walking styles. Do I walk my dog at a brisker pace than one of my family members does, for example? Uh, Absolutely. And and, uh, there have been cases, for example, where, you know, the devices have been used to track effectively dog walkers have done their their job in that sense uh, and so on. So there are privacy implications of wearables and they're not just for those who are actually wearing them. It's also those who come into contact with them knowingly or unknowingly. No, it's fascinating. All right, Professor Awais Rashid, thanks for joining us. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, 
and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.